This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. Yeah, I'm just going to go ahead and get started. And uh, I just thank you for coming out, sitting in a cold if you're in the back, or maybe warm room with a mask on on a Friday night uh, before a snowstorm. Thank you. And just a bit, of, just a word. This lecture is a part of a larger series I've been working on for the last year and a half or so on Paul and controversial passages, especially pertaining to women. And my hope has been just to shed some light on these passages and shed some light on Paul. And shedding light might be a good way for us to think about Paul himself. Uh, Just to sort of get a read on the room. When I speak of the Apostle Paul, or you saw it in the title of the lecture uh, that you either chose to come to or had to come to, what comes to mind? I'm just curious, what comes to, what kind of words or images come to mind when people think of Paul? Intense. Intense. Apostle. Apostle. Yeah, that's good. That's... It's not a wrong answer here. Um, suffering. Suffering. Yeah. Reconciling. Reconciling. These are good. What's that? Did I hear something, Peter? Or no? No? Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, a number of years ago, I had a, I had a great conversation with um, a student that was here, a really smart woman, who more or less said she just thinks he's a jerk uh, and a bully and a misogynist. And very long-winded and very confusing. And I found myself thinking, like, I don't actually know uh, how to necessarily come back at that. And I, she sort of had a little bit of a point. I think ultimately, I think of Paul differently. But there's uh, a, a way to maybe think about Paul that uh, I've recently learned about through a guy named Tim Mackey, who helps run the Bible Project. And it's through some contemporary artists, uh, two artists their work, I think, captures something about what Paul is doing. They're not Christians. Uh, their name are Tim Noble and Sue Webster. And if you Google them, which you should, because I think what you'll see is kind of interesting, um, but some of it's a little offensive, um, a little risque. But so they're modern artists. Here they are. We get kind of how edgy they are. Like he's, <laughs> he's, uh, yeah, he's not someone you want to bring home and meet your parents. He's gonna <laughs> say inappropriate things at the table. But here's some examples of their art. I'm gonna show you sort of what you see when you when you when you first see their art, and then how they how they go about doing it. Those in the back, I apologize if you can't see as well. But yeah, there's some of their art. It's uh, it's some stuff. And then here is a table of cans and trash. So maybe you first, you walk in the gallery and you see this and you think, oh, they're, they're this kind of artist. They're making a statement about something. But as you move around the gallery, you, and you eventually see that they have lights in very particular places and a place where you're supposed to stand. And when you do, you see the shadow. 
You see, as the light goes on these strange subjects, you see the outline, the shadow of a boy. And when you get to the city, or get to this table of trash, what's behind it is really the skyline of a city. So setting things in a particular light, or a new light, has, has you reevaluate them, has you see things differently. And there's something about this that captures, I think, what the Apostle Paul is on about. Paul, who himself, when he was Saul, was blinded by light on the road to Damascus, it caused him to look at everything differently. To look at everything in a new light. The inbreaking apocalyptic light of Christ necessitated a reevaluation and and a, a reconsidering of everything. Everything had to be rethought again. The purpose of the law, the nation of Israel, who are the people of God. What are all of these things about? And one of the things he set in a new light was the household. What is the household? in light of the light of Christ. And that's what uh, I want to get to tonight, uh, how Paul kind of looks at the ancient household, which then subsequently reflects on how we consider our homes today. Uh, But I want to do that. Before we get to that, I just want to give you an idea of where we're going tonight. Uh, I'm going to first talk about ancient households. From there, talk about submission. What is this submission? We often hear, or, or maybe you've heard uh, a quote. If there's an award for a line from Paul, a verse from Paul that gets quoted without any context or any awareness of what comes before it or after it, it's probably wives submit to your husbands. Uh, we're going to talk about that. And then we're going to look at his metaphor of the head. And then there are going to be a very few concluding thoughts. Um, but going back uh, to Paul, um, uh, 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 setting the ancient household uh, in a new light. Um, before we do that, um, I, uh, I just want to do a little sort of contemporary house cleaning before we go there. Because the, the, the passage that I want to walk through the night, the, the thing that I want to consider tonight, uh, Paul's talking about the submission of wives uh, it's very controversial in North American evangelical circles. There's a lot of ink shed and sometimes feels like bloodshed over over these words. Um, and I just want to lay out incredibly briefly um, the two dominant ways that these passages from Paul have been understood or are being understood today. And the two camps are called complementarians on one side, complementarianism, on one side, and egalitarianism on the other side. I, I will probably have more to say about this uh, throughout the lecture, but complementarians believe that men and women are of equal status. But the home, as well as the church, and usually the broader culture, should be hierarchically ordered because men have been invested with a distinct authority, which they often call headship, uh, that women need to submit to. So equal in status, but hierarchically ordered, with men being in charge or men being leaders. Egalitarians agree with the first part of this. Moving to the other side. Egalitarians agree that men and women are of equal status. This is great. They uh, uh, both carry the image of God. They have the same worth. But the distinction that complementarians uh, 
see where men need to lead or be in charge of women, egalitarians say that's not the biblical pattern that men and women relate to one another. Uh, There's a mutuality between them. It's not a gendered hierarchy. Uh, If you know me or if you've heard some of my previous talks on this, you know that I pretty comfortably fall into the egalitarian category. That's what we're going to kind of talk through tonight, even though I hate I don't hate. I strongly dislike and would never sort of deliberately call myself an egalitarian. I don't think it's the most helpful term. Uh, and that's been a tradition in this branch of Labrie for since the mid-80s. Uh, actually, tonight we as a team celebrated Marty's birthday, Marty Kaiser's birthday, and she's been teaching and kind of and putting these ideas out there within Labrie and whoever on earth it is that listens to Labrie uh, for 40 years now. So I'm sort of honored to continue in this and be downstream from this. Um, and even though I fall in that camp, I need to say I have a lot of respect for those who see this differently, who understand this differently. I'm incredibly wary of some of the leading voices in the complementarian camp, the the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, or John Piper, or Wayne Grudem, people who I find uh, fairly unhelpful on these matters. Um, but I also have concerns about my own camp, or the camp that I tend to lump myself in, uh, especially those within the egalitarian camp that are really quick to want to dismiss parts of the Bible that they just don't like or that they don't want to hear, things that Paul says they just want to, they just want to move on. I would rather work alongside a complementarian who takes the Bible seriously than someone who sort of holds the same position that I do, but who gets there kind of lazily by dismissing the Bible. Um, I, I'm just not, I'm not interested in that. And I, um, as I set Paul's words about the household against those of his day, I just want to uh, highlight that I don't believe modern day complementarians and if you're not familiar with this discussion and you're not following this part particularly well, it's, it's totally fine. We'll get to the stuff later. Uh, 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 the good stuff later. But I want to highlight that while I, I don't believe complementarians are correct in the reading on this, uh, I don't appreciate the way egalitarians can slander them and sort of lazily cast them as ancient, ancient pa- patriarchy just in a nice package today, I, I do think they are still patriarchal, but I think they are uh, distinct from first century pagan uh, patriarchy. And um, so I, the, the conversation within the church, I think right now, is generally very unhelpful and very embarrassing and sort of mirrors a lot of polarization and bickering that happens in our wider culture. And so while I would love if every... A denomination in North America ordained women to all positions of leadership and that a view of marriage being mutual between men and women would be the norm. Uh, I think maybe a more realistic vision would be complementarians and egalitarians uh, not speaking about each other in such poor faith uh, and admitting that we disagree on the interpretation of these passages, but we take the Bible seriously and we can work together to care and protect for abused women and for vulnerable children, especially young girls, because the nature of being a woman in the world today is still very, very precarious. It's very, very troubling. A recent UNICEF report based on a survey of women ages 15 
to 49 revealed that 90% of wives in Afghanistan and Jordan, 86% of wives in Mali, 81% in Laos, and 80% in the Central African Republic believe that a husband is justified in hitting or beating a wife in certain circumstances. There is a lot of work that collectively complementarians and egalitarians can do to shed a little more of the light of Christ in the world, especially for the sake of women. So even though we're going to disagree about things, I want to speak well of them, confess they are brothers and sisters in the Lord, but that I just don't think they always uh, get things right. So all that sort of housekeeping out of the way, maybe that was completely over your head or completely using words you've never heard of before. I think groups love to give themselves like fancy sounding names with isms at the end. Complementarianism, egalitarianism makes them sound sophisticated. We're going to move now to the exciting, uh, exciting subject of ancient households. So ancient households or an oikos are not at all synonymous with a modern Western nuclear family. Modern households today, with the exception of what we've been living through or are still living through with COVID, a home is, is ideally a place to get away from work, to get away from your colleagues, to sleep, to eat, to be with family, to pursue hobbies. There's a clearly demarcated outside world uh, where we work, where we do commerce, but home is where we hang our hat, it's where we put our feet up, it's where we relax. In the ancient world, though, so much more happened in one's home, in one's household, in an oikos. A household was more like an estate. It was not just your immediate family, but you would have cousins and extended family and, and uh, employees and servants and slaves all living under one roof. To manage one's household was less laundry, shopping lists, and chores, but the governance of an entire estate. Think something here like Downton Abbey, but just not with like as nice molding and as fancy <laughs> as fancy clothes. Um, there just would have been a lot of effort and management and money and organization necessary to run a home. And again, it was not just a nuclear family; it was a network of people. And uh, households uh, and the running of households was a uh, was a vital concern in the ancient world because a household needed to be properly run and properly ordered. So there would be various sets of rules or codes about how to go about doing it. This was true in, in pagan and Jewish circles. You can read these still today. We're, I'm going to read a little bit of one from Aristotle in just a minute. And it was to make sure the house ran smoothly. And this was uh, in part because the household was considered a microcosm of the whole empire, of the whole culture. If the household falls, the empire falls. So the stability of a household was crucial for the empire. And so sometimes, especially those who were in charge of a household, uh, a potter familius, uh, a, a, a male master and landowner who was invested with what a, a legal right that's called uh, uh, Petria Protesta. He, these folks that were sort of on the top of the food chain were anxious because there were significantly less of them than there were of people who were of lower status in the home. So there was a fear that there could be an uprising, an overtaking. 
So these codes were very important because these codes would keep people in the place they belong in the hierarchy so that the household ran well, and if all the households run well, the empire runs well, and things, and things work well. And there are differing sorts of rules that govern the relationships within a household. And those relationships were masters and slaves, husbands and wives, and then fathers and children. Those are sort of the three sets. And if you've read Ephesians 5 and 6, uh, as well as, as Colossians, you know these are the three sets of relationships Paul addresses in these places. Um, and uh, so one of the most significant or influential household codes, they weren't called household codes in the ancient world. Actually, Martin Luther is the one, uh, the Protestant reformer, is the one who sort of picked up on these in the ancient world, and he, he named them household codes. Um, but one of the most uh, significant ones, influential ones, was Aristotle's politics. So I'm going to read a little bit from uh, Aristotle's politics to you all. So this is Aristotle. Uh, this is politics 1-3, for those that are keeping track at home. Uh, seeing then that the state is made up of households, before speaking of the state, we must speak of the management of the household. The parts of the household management correspond to the persons who compose the household. A complete household consists of slaves and freemen. Now we should begin by examining everything in the fewest possible elements. And the first and fewest parts of a family are master and slave, husband and wife, father and children. He goes on a little bit later in Politics 1-2 to say, Of household management, we have seen that there are three parts. One is the rule of master over slaves, another of a father, and a third of a husband. A husband and a father, we saw, rules over wife and children. Both free, but the rule differs. The rule over his children being royal, he's like a king uh, in the house. And the rule over his wife is based on natural constitution. For although there may be exceptions to the order of nature, the male is by nature fitter for command than the female, just as the elder and the full-grown is superior to the younger and more immature. So if you you caught that there, the reason why men rule over their wives is because they're just, they're fitter, they're better. This is how nature has designed them, according to Aristotle. And we see a similar thing in one uh, Jewish source as well. Josephus uh, mentions, uh, he says this, The woman is in all things inferior to the man. Let her accordingly be obedient, not for her humiliation, but that she may be directed, for God has given authority to the man. Uh, and that's from his, again, against Appion. So from the time, again, of Luther, scholars uh, have classified this, this large, this extensive network of household codes. And if you're at all interested uh, in reading any more about household codes, which I, I'm getting a read on the room, people are pretty into this at the moment. Uh, I would suggest Craig Keener's book, Paul, Women, and Wives. He kind of works through this. Keener is uh, a New Testament scholar at Asbury and is just sort of a master of ancient sources uh, from the time before the Bible to a little bit after. He's it's a it's a easy to read book by a highly 
accomplished scholar. Um, <clears throat> but again, <clears throat> these codes uh, are, are, are read alongside Paul, and they put what Paul is up to in, uh, in his letters in a new light. Uh, and a thing we notice is that these codes were to instruct the master of the household, the male husband, the father, the slave owner, the landowner, in his duty towards those who were subordinate to him. So, again, uh, the paterfamilias, who is invested with uh, this, this, this right of patria protesta, who has a legal right to, to be in charge, to rule. And in none of these household codes, uh, subordinates are addressed. <clears throat> now, so this is a form in which ancient households are addressed and considered and shaped. And so the question of whether Paul adopts this uh, sort of blindly or whether he adapts it, I, th- I think is really interesting. And time doesn't permit us to look at what Paul says to, to uh, children and to slaves. Uh, at least I won't say that directly. We can talk about that if people want to. Um, but I just want to highlight as we move into Paul's letters three things that Paul does that no other ancient code or direction to households did. Something that really set him apart. Like I think we read Paul today and we find him scandalous for the exact opposite reasons that people found him scandalous in the first century. So the first thing that Paul does is he addresses the subordinates. And he addresses them first. He speaks to them, he speaks to women, children, and slaves as though they are responsible moral agents. There's no one else in the ancient world that does this. Paul speaks to them as people because he thinks they're people. This to us feels like the most obvious thing. This was not the case when Paul was writing. The second thing he does is every time he speaks to the male with more power, when he addresses the male of the household, he challenges them. He calls the more powerful member of the relationship to act with gentleness and kindness to those who, according to the logic of the day, are below him. He does this actually three times. He only addresses women, children, and slaves once. But each time after he addresses women, after he addresses children and slaves, he addresses the male, the man who is invested with this legal right to do what he wants, and he challenges them, instead of having them serve him, for him to serve them, or even more radically, for him to love them. So the second thing Paul does is he challenges the more the powerful male. The third thing he does is he adds a theological warrant to his commands. He is setting them in the light of Christ. He's putting what goes on in the household in a new light. He's shining the light of Christ into a home. And so he adopts a common, well-known form, um, but he radically adapts it in light of the gospel. So with these, these things in place... Let's go ahead and move to speaking about Paul and submission. And um, I want to read the larger unit of thought in which we hear sort of the well-known, most uh, one of the most quoted lines of Paul, why submit uh, to your husband. And before putting, I, I have sort of, I've diagrammed it a bit out, done a bit of a flow chart on it. But it's a mass, it comes in the middle of a massive section from verse 8 in chapter 5 of Ephesians, 
from verses 18 to 24, it's one sentence. Paul loves these big, long, complicated sentences. I feel like his mind is like, pew, 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 pew. He like starts thinking of something. He's like, squirrel, and then he's on to something else, and a squirrel, he's on this, like, he's just going, going, but he brings it all together. He's not, uh, he's, he's not incoherent. Um, and, uh, so let, let's see, and hopefully you can see it there. I apologize if the screen isn't large enough, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna read it to you all, and it says, this is 18 to 24. Uh, and do not get drunk with wine in which there is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with y'all's hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to our God and Father, and submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of the Lord. Wives to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. And it's worth saying that wherever one falls on the nature of what the submission Paul is talking about, uh, the specifics of how, how it goes on, all agree that the primary verb here that I've highlighted, that you probably can't tell that I've highlighted from where you're, you're sitting, is to be filled with the Spirit. That is the primary verb of this whole section of thought. Everything begins with this active, passive posture of believers continually being filled by the Spirit. The presence and the power of God. And Paul's mind moves to what it looks like within the life of a community. And he's going to offer up these subordinate clauses that I've lined up underneath being filled there. Because he's giving you concrete examples, characteristics of what life, of what a life of being filled by the Spirit looks like. And I did, if you can tell, if, or if you heard, I changed the you to y'alls. Because every time in Ephesians, he's, he's not talking to one person. He's not talking to a you. You individually. He's talking to the, the whole community, the whole church, and so it's more of a, it's more of a y'all. And this community that's filled by the Spirit is characterized by speaking to one another in psalms and hymns, in poetry to one another. The poet or poets in this room should like that. And they should sing to one another and make songs in their hearts that Songwriters and singers and musicians in the room should should love that too. And they should always give thanks. This is a community of gratitude. And finally, in verse 21, it's a community that submits to one another. Submits to one another. Submitting one to another. This is where we come across the controversial word of Paul. Submitting. Hupatasso in Greek. It means subordination. It means subjection. Hupa meaning under, tasso, meaning put. Did I get that right, Sam? I didn't get it backwards. That's right. Yes. Um, And it's worth noticing, if not actually belaboring the fact that when Paul speaks about submission, initially, he's speaking in communal terms. A mutual, reciprocal, to one another, out of fear or out of reverence to Christ. It's a mutual submission that is one of the four characteristics that defines and characterizes a community that is being filled by the Spirit. 
And mutual submission isn't just being nice or considerate. It's treating others as though they have a status that's above yours. Right? If you're a master, you're treating your slave as though they're somehow above a master. Maybe like a senator or something like, <clears throat> something like that. It's a radical call in an ancient culture that was hierarchically delineated. Paul's churches were composed of all sorts of people. Greeks and Jews, slaves and free, men and women, who according to the prevailing logic of the day, belong to different social groups and classes and shouldn't associate with one another. Shouldn't really freely associate or eat with people, especially of a lower class. And at this point in the letter to Ephesians, it would have been great if we could have just started in one and kind of worked our way here, but we would have had to start last week. But Paul has spent three chapters telling these people over and over again, you were once, you were once separated, but now you're brought near. You were once aliens and strangers, but now you have a birthright. And what was divided, you were divided, you're now one. Being one is a major theme in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Over and over again, initially, he, he, he's hammering this home. And it's almost like whatever your status is out in the world, that's great. You can have it. But when you come into the community of Christ, when you come into the assembly of people who follow Jesus, all of that is relativized. And one of the ways we know and we show that is we speak in poetry, in psalms, and in songs to one another. We sing, we give thanks, and we submit one to another. I'm going to keep focusing on this mutual submission. Mutual reciprocal submission. It sounds a lot like what Paul says in a lot of the other 12 letters of his that we have in the New Testament. One of the most striking things that he says comes, that sounds like this to me, comes in Galatians 5, where he says, through love serve one another. That's how it's translated, but what he actually says is be slaves of one another. And one of my favorite uh, New Testament are, are Paul commentators uh, or writers is this guy named John Barclay, and he's written uh, this big book on Paul. And he, he I just, it's a longer quote. Um, he's an academic, uh, so bear with some of that. But he he puts this line about becoming slaves one to another. Uh, I, he just he has some beautiful thoughts on it. He says this. He says this is a remarkable expression. Since it adjusts an inherently hierarchical relationship, slavery, not by canceling it in the name of equality, but by making it reciprocal, a hierarchy that turns both ways. The simple but powerful words, aliois, which turn is means one another, one to another, turns a one-way relationship of power and superiority into a mutual relationship of reciprocal deference where each seeks to promote the interests of the other. The same structure of relationships is outlined in the matching phrase of Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens, and you will fulfill the law of Christ. Burden-bearing, the work of slaves, is again made a task for all in relation to all. Submission to the interests of others is is saved from becoming a charter for the crushing of the weak, by being turned also into reverse, such that service and honor are continually exchanged. 
I love that. Service and honor are continually exchanged within this community. He goes on to say a little bit later, what matters is not gaining superiority, but seeding it, and seeding it to be honored in return. And this sounds a lot like what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. He says this, so if, and I'm gonna, this is a little bit longer. Um, he says this, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the power of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Uh, some scholars speak about that as Paul's master story. This is the thing that animates everything he does and everything he thinks. So why then, if Paul starts with a communal, mutual, reciprocal submission within the community, if he's telling them to submit one to another, if he starts there, why doesn't he single out wife submission to the husbands? Does he give with one hand only just to immediately take away with the other? I think it's a good question, and I'm actually not completely convinced that he does. Now, what's telling, before we move forward, is in most English translations, pretty much all the English translations that I looked at, there is a section break at this point uh, between verses 21 and verses 22. And they usually supply a title, such as the Christian family or husbands and wives, which I think is misleading because it implies that there is a, a break in thought or we're moving to a new section. But remember what I said, grammatically, this is all one sentence. This is all one continual thought. This is all Paul elaborating on what a spirit, uh, uh, what a, a community being filled by the spirit looks like. So grammatically, it's an it's uh, it's it's a questionable decision. Um, and I also think this because if you can tell up here, uh, I, I again apologize for the the size um, of the slide. Verse 22 has no verb. Did I, Maybe you heard me say that. I said, and submit yourselves one to another in the fear of Christ, wives to your own husbands, as to the Lord. Uh, what Paul says in verse 22 only makes sense if it's subordinate off of the previous verse. The previous verse is called to a communal, reciprocal submitting of yourselves one to another. New Testament scholar Lynn Kohick, in her excellent Ephesians commentary, writes the following. 5.22 does not have its own verb. It relies on 5.21 and its participle. This grammar points to the logical connection between the two verses. 
They're connected. There should not be a division in your Bible uh, between them. Uh, And both verses reliance on the main verb in 5.18, being filled with the Spirit. While we might debate what submitting entailed in Paul's churches, I'm open to that, it is clear from a grammatical standpoint that he is not commanding only wives to submit. Had Paul wanted to command this, he would have used a finite verb in the imperative, much as he does in 5.25, in his command that husbands love their wives. Kohik's point, and she is far from alone here, she is not like a lone voice crying out in the wilderness. Uh, but the call for wives, uh, um, uh, this wives to their husbands, is actually the initial example of the sort of mutual submission that characterizes a community that's being filled by the Spirit. That's why it doesn't have its own verb of submit. It's borrowing it from the previous verse. It's not singling out the sole sort of submission that should characterize a Christian marriage. It's just talking about the first kind. So in a textbook on discourse grammar in the Greek New Testament, really like... You're, you're spending your Friday night listening to someone who's quoting a, a, a discourse grammar of Greek New Testament. Uh, just putting that out there, just making you aware of that. By a guy named Stephen Runge, he sums up this whole thing saying that to infer an imperative in verse 22 is an interpretation unsubstantiated by the grammar. So Paul's vision begins with an entire community characterized by mutual submission, among other things, as a characteristic of what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit, submitting ourselves one to another. Um, and, uh, and, and wives to their husbands is the first example of what this mutual submission looks like that Paul names as he then moves into these series of relationships. Now, submission still is not um, a word many people like uh, to hear, myself included, um, uh, which I don't say that pridefully, uh, necessarily. But a way that's been helpful for me to think about this, uh, I've, I've taken from a small book by a theologian uh, named Alan Paget. The book is called As Christ Submits to the Church. And he differentiates between two sorts of submission. Uh, he calls them very creatively type 1, and any guesses on what the second one is called? Type four. Type two. Yeah, any, yeah, okay, yeah, type two. Yeah, I know. I, I was, yeah, it's brilliant. Um, it is a, it's, a, it's a helpful book. Sorry, I shouldn't, but anyway. Um, but he speaks about type one as coming from the realm of political and military struggle. This type of submission is to an external authority, which can be voluntarily obeyed, but often is not. And he contrasts, he says this is external, it's hierarchical, and it's legal. And he contrasts this to type 2. It comes from personal relationships and is often based on love or compassion. In the second type, submission is the voluntary giving up of power in order to take up the role of a slave so that one may serve the needs of another person. This first type, uh, again, is external, hierarchical, and legal. The second is internal, it's personal, and it's an act of grace. <clears throat> now, there's, um, I, yeah, I, I, I think this makes more sense of the way Jesus talks about 
authority. The way Jesus speaks about what true leadership looks like in his upside-down kingdom. And I'm going to read a long section here from Mark 35 that I think just sort of beautifully illustrates what Paget is after in this submission type 2. This is Mark 10. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. You have to admit, it's just like, these guys, we're in chapter 10. Like, it's not like we're in chapter 1. Like, we've, uh, anyway. Um, and he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Which is actually quite a stunning response uh, to the arrogance that's about to come from them. And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? He's he's speaking about his crucifixion, I think. And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called to him and said to them, called to them, called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, but their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, some of the more popular complementarian, remember the first group we talked about here that think marriage is, is, is hierarchically ordered, and they affirm that men and women are equal. Some of them write as though the type one type of authority that Pageant was talking about, to an external, legal, hierarchical, uh, is sort of the only type of submission that, that we see in the New Testament. Wayne Grudem and John Piper more or less say so explicitly in their book on recovering uh, uh, biblical manhood and womanhood. And they say the term always implies a relationship of submission to an authority. But I don't know. Uh, when we consider the life of Jesus, the one Paul's reciprocal submission within a, a community is patterned off of, uh, I don't know if that's the only way to make sense uh, of, of authority and submission. And in um, a really excellent but extremely overpriced book called, <laughs> called Icons of Christ, A Biblical and Systematic Theology for Women's Ordination by William Witt, uh, he's an Anglican theologian in Pittsburgh, he writes sort of in this line, and he says, it's noteworthy that the authority that Jesus gave to his apostles was authority over demons, and unclean spirits, as well as over illness and death. When the Gospels use the word exousia, authority, in reference to the apostles, it is always in reference to their authority over non-human enemies of the Gospel, never human beings. When Jesus forbids his disciples to rule as the Gentiles do, 
like we saw here, like also in Matthew 20. The words used to describe the forbidden behavior uh, mean to have control or to bring into uh, to bring into subjection. He goes on to ask, what does it say then that the kind of authority of men over women that many complementarians insist is essential to Christian marriage seems to be the kind of authority of one person over another that Jesus explicitly forbids his disciples to have? Jesus' understanding of leadership within the kingdom and what it means to exercise authority is backwards. It seems upside down. It seems counterintuitive. To me, it seems more like type 2 submission. So I remain unconvinced that Ephesians 5.22 is a singled-out, solitary, one-way submission within marriage. Husbands over the wives. Wives under the husbands. But this is just the first example of a larger pattern of mutual submission. What it is like, a life, what a life of being filled by the Spirit looks like. And I'm a dyed-in-the-wool Protestant, um, but I so appreciate how former Pope John Paul II wrote about this passage in his, uh, his, his fascinating book, Theology of the Body, which is a, a series of short reflections on three passages in Scripture, including Ephesians 5, um, that he did over a number of years. And he says this, the relationship in Ephesians 5 is nevertheless not one-sided submission. According to the teaching of Ephesians, husbands and wife are subject to one another, mutually subordinated to one another. The source of this reciprocal submission lies in Christian piety, is an expression of love. I love that he calls that an expression of love. Um, So does Paul want wives to submit to their husbands? Yes. Yes, he does. But it needs to be said that the vision of submission is not to her only. Husbands, too, submit themselves to their wives. Uh, As it it goes on, they lead lives of mutual submission. Filling out out this word, uh, Paul actually spends, in, in the subsequent verses, Paul's comments to women, to the wives, are 47 words. He then spends 143 words telling husbands how they are to love their wives, how they are to care for their wives. He has much more extensive and lengthy imperatives uh, for them, what it means for them to love and to serve, uh, to live lives of mutual submission. And this is just because I think this is how all Christians are supposed to live one to another in Paul's vision. So Paul goes on to write this to husbands. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. Again, 143 words to the fellas and only 47 uh, to the women. And it's interesting that in the same way, uh, in 521, Paul sort of sets uh, mutual submission as a characteristic of the whole community. In 5.1 or 5.2, he tells the whole community that they should love one another. So what he's repeating to the wife and then to the husband, he's already said needs to characterize everybody, 
Though obviously the husband and wife's marriage is, 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 a, is an intensification or a, a, a special instance of this. Uh, time limits me from spending too much time in the words to husbands here. Uh, but uh, Cindy Westfall, in her wonderful book, uh, her really helpful book, Paul and Gender, Reclaiming the Apostles' Vision for Men and Women in Christ. She's a professor up in Canada uh, at um, McMaster Divinity School. She writes this. Uh, it's a really, I think it's a helpful book. Um, when husbands are addressed, I just think it's interesting. This is a fascinating thing that she highlights here. When husbands are addressed, the male role is not described in terms of the expected categories of responsibilities in the public domain of warrior, protector, provider, and patron. Instead, the imagery quickly shifts to household scenes of bathing, clothing, laundering, feeding, and nurturing. Because Jesus is depicted as providing these services for the church, which is both his bride and his body. In Hellenistic culture, these are explicit household functions that women and slaves provide for men or other women. Now this is how he's describing how a husband loves his wife. She goes on to say, by bathing, clothing, feeding, and nurturing the woman, men are treating women as superior when viewed from within the Greco-Roman cultural paradigm. The passage beautifully illustrates mutual submission within a relationship that would be le- uh, that is legally hierarchical in the Roman Empire. And she, she said, I, her point is that Paul uses some of these metaphors to create dissonance within his hearers. They're just like, wait, what, what do you want me to do as a husband for my wife? What, what, what are you calling for? Because she thinks, she believes, and I believe Paul, uh, he's trying, Paul is trying to construct new identities and new relationships for what men and women, what husbands and wife, what it looks like in Christ. So again, a wife's submission to her husband, I don't think is singled out as a one-way command of Paul's here. And I, I know I'm belaboring this point. But it's an example of the sort of submitting one to another that Paul says is characteristic of the entire community of believers when they are being filled by the Spirit. Um, and that being said, in between verses, uh, uh, verse, uh, some of these verses here, 22, wives to your husbands, 25, husbands to your wife, Paul says um, that the husband is the head of the wife. So what what's going on there? And that's where we're go to next. Head. Um, I want to get it. I was going to try to make a get ahead of ourselves joke, but... Um, <laughs> I guess I sort of did. Um, Within evangelicalism in particular, over the last four or five decades, at least I'm 40, I've been sort of listening to this for five or six years. It feels like it's been going on for a lot longer. Uh, But when talking about marriage in general, or looking at this passage in particular, a lot have fixated on wife's submission to her husband and the husband's supposed authority as a head. The word Paul uses here is kephale in Greek. Within English, Latin, and German, authority is a common inference or connotation of being head. The head honcho, the head waiter, the heads of state. These are leaders. But even within English, there's other connotations. Think of headwaters or a trailhead. 
This doesn't imply that these waters are the boss waters or that this part of the trail is in charge of all other parts of the trails. Uh, instead, it's these are the source, the source of the water, the beginning of the water, or the start, the origin of the trail. It's just worth keeping in mind that even within English, there's more than one natural connotation or implication of head when it's used metaphorically. And I just, as maybe you've guessed, putting my cards on the table, I don't think the Greek word kephale, when Paul is using it here or elsewhere necessarily, means authority. I don't think that's what he's saying when he says uh, that the husband is the head. And so I, I've been wrong on so many things in my life, so I could be wrong on this too. But when people talk about male headship, when I've this is more anecdotal, when I've had older men speak to me about my authority in the home and my male headship, I just tend to kind of roll my eyes and just not, I don't always know what to do with it. But the word headship, it's all over the writing on this stuff. But it's interesting, in this uh, here, this really, uh, this, this volume of the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, which is a multi-volume uh, work on uh, the usage of Greek words before the writing of the New Testament, subsequently after the New Testament, within the New Testament itself. Uh, our favorite German uh, scholar, everybody's uh, favorite German scholar, Heinrich Schleier. Any Schleier fans in the house? Yeah, that's right. Schleier for life. Um, he writes that in the secular usage, in the common usage of Paul's day in Greek, kephale is not employed as an authority or a leader. There are plenty of other words for leader or for being in charge or for having authority. Kephale is not one of them at the time of Paul. And from my research, uh, from what I could gather, many other uh, similar reference works come to the same conclusion. Uh, I haven't looked at all of them or know all of them, so I don't want to speak as though I have. It's counterintuitive to us, but in the Greek of Paul's day, to be in charge was not the first or necessary nuance of being a head, being the head of something. Uh, In the Greek of the New Testament in Paul's day, the primary meaning of kephale of head, is first head, a literal head uh, that is on a neck and on shoulders. Secondly, it is a source, like trailhead, like headwaters. And third, it means prominence, being like the most at something. Think of like the head of the class. Um, Now, it's worth saying, too, that Paul writes in Greek, but I think he thinks in Hebrew. I mean, his world... His vision of the world, the way he expresses himself, is just saturated with the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, uh, head was used as a term for authority. So his mind and imagination have been shaped by the Hebrew Scriptures. So it's not as just sort of simple as saying, like, look, no one else was in Greek was saying head meant authority, therefore it doesn't mean authority. I, I think there is some possibility there. But I, I'm not convinced. Um, that it is, and uh, we'll, I'll give you a few reasons, at least why I don't think so. So I think an important thing, if you're trying to figure out the meaning of a word, is just to see how it's used in other places by the same author. And luckily for us, Paul has already used kephale in Ephesians. He has beat us to it. And so I think the, he actually has used it twice, once 
in uh, Ephesians 1 uh, that I think clearly means prominence. But the one here that would be more closely related, it has, it's using the same imagery as in Ephesians 5, comes in Ephesians 4. <clears throat> so this is Ephesians 4, um, 14 to 16. And he's talking about how Christ gave gifts when he ascended. He gave prophets and apostles and teachers to the church for the building up of the church. He's talking about the maturing of the church. And he says, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every kind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So there are certain metaphors here that actually show up again in in 5 about a body, but the image here is growing in maturity, growing up into a head, growing up into one's head. And as is often the case when you like begin to sit with metaphors that Paul uses instead of just sort of running over them, yeah, it's just such a, it's kind of a strange image. It's kind of a strange picture. The church is a body. Uh, in particular, it's Christ's body, but Christ isn't his own body. He's the head of his body. And this body is growing up into the head. The head is the source of the body. It's coming from, from uh, whom the whole body uh, uh, comes. And it's almost as though the head-body proportions are off in some way, is what it feels like. Like it's a really large head, and the body needs to mature so that it's not, doesn't maybe like fall over uh, uh, or something. But the church needs to grow up and become proportionate to its head, to match its head who is Christ. And um, he, he does something interesting in verse 16. The body is growing up and from the head. The head is the source of its growth. What holds it together is its head. So in this theological metaphor, I think the activity of the head doesn't appear to be having authority or being in charge of what's going on here. Uh, uh, It's sourcing. It's the source from which the body is coming from the head. And it's not even the main point. I think the point he's ultimately working towards is there is a union, there is a connection, there is a oneness between the church and Christ. In the same way, a body and a head are connected. There is a union here. That is what he's working towards, I think, here. I don't think he wants us to get tripped up on, like, you know, sometimes, like, mascots for teams have, like, huge heads, or, like, a few years ago, the Arcade Fire had those big heads when they did the tour, which were strange. I don't think that's what he's working towards. I think he's talking about a union uh, between believers, between the church and Christ. And it sounds strange to us, but it's uh, I'm about to make it even stranger. Uh, ancient medical thinking puts a fair bit of emphasis, evidently, on the head. I got... A fair bit of this, again, from Cindy Westfall's book, Paul and Gender. But ancient thinkers, including Aristotle and Pythagoras, taught that sperm originates in the head, it travels down the spine, and ends up in the testicles. Part of the logic is that the way you know my kids 
are my kids and not someone else's kids is because their face looks like my face. Their, their heads, our heads sort of line up in a way. So you can see how like the thinking of the head as the source of something, uh, according to ancient medical thinking, makes some sense. Westfall actually has this quote from a guy uh, named uh, Artemidorius De, uh, De, Daldeanus. I didn't say that out loud when I was practicing my lecture. I wish I did. Um, and he's writing about beheadings. And he says that it's grievous for those who have parents and for those who have children. For the head is like the parents due to its being the cause of life. And it is like the children due to its face and resemblance to them. So he sees the head as the source. And you can sort of see how how that's going. Um, so a literal head was thought to be the source of life. And so to describe someone as a head was often a way to speak, or, or something about, uh, describing something as a head was a way to speak about it as a source of life, uh, 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 the source where things come from. Other places where Paul does this is in Colossians 1. Christ is the head of the body. Again, head and body. The image is the connectedness uh, of the church and Christ. And he goes on to say that he's the beginning. In Colossians 2, he said, Those who do not hold fast to the head, from whom the whole body grows. Again, that's sort of the same idea, I think, that's in Ephesians 4. The body's uh, coming forth from it. And then 1 Corinthians 11, which is the craziest thing Paul wrote. Uh, is talking about it. I think Paul is also speaking about sourcing there. So to say that here in Ephesians 4, head has to function as authority, uh, I don't think is a necessary thing. I also don't know if it makes the most sense. It's telling also that later when Paul speaks about slaves and describes a relationship that is one of authority, he doesn't talk about it as a head, uh, which you would you would think he does. And in another place where Paul writes about marriage and actually doesn't even use a metaphor for authority, just goes right to the word itself and speaks about authority in marriage, uh, he, he does something quite differently. And it's interesting that he does this in 1 Corinthians, a same, the same letter where he speaks about heads metaphorically, I think in ways that make uh, more sense uh, as, as sourcing than as authority. And he's speaking about the authority within marriage. And he structures it not with male authority over women. It's interesting. This is, I do, I will say, I feel like in some ways I'm picking on complementarians. If you look in the index of complementarian books, at least the ones I've looked at, Ephesians 5 about wives submitting and men being heads, there's dozens and dozens of pages where they're going to talk about this. And there's like no pages that they talk about first Corinthians 7 at all like it's just it's not a thing I don't I don't get it but Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 7 now concerning the matters about which you wrote and then he quotes them it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman end of quote but because of the temptation to sexual immorality each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband having a woman should have this is crazy thing for someone to say in the first century. And it gets crazier. The husband should give uh, to his wife her conjugal rights. She has rights. Her husband owes her something. 
and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. It's... (laughs) So, um... I don't think Paul is talking when he speaks of a husband as a head. I don't think it's necessary to interpret it as meaning the husband is the authority over the wife in all situations uh, for, for the reasons I've said. And as you go on to what Paul says here, Paul's words, Paul's 147 words to husbands. So husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Because we are parts of his body, for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a, this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, as for you individually, each is to love his own wife the same as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. As he goes on, again, as he fills out what's asked of the husband, the head and body metaphorical language, um, again, draw connection or move towards the one flesh union between Christ and the church, that Christ and the church are one. Christ's head of his own body They are one together, two distinct subjects. Christ and the church have been brought together. And so Christ, or Paul's 147 words to husbands here, his call for husbands to love, to have agape towards their life, their wife, uh, is not only countercultural to his day, it's radical. It's radical in the sense of of an older sense of the word radical. It's going to the, the origins. It's taking us back back to the beginning. Because Paul inevitably finds himself quoting from the early chapters of Genesis. For a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Again, the emphasis there is on becoming one, on the union there. He brings us back to the beginning. It's just as Christ uh, and the church have become one, Christ being the head, the church being the body, so also have husband as the head and wife as the body become one. I think that's what, how the metaphor is working, what it's, what it's emphasizing. The emphasis is not on one-sided authority or hierarchy. Paul's mind is moving in a metaphor not of the husband as the head alone, a head floating without a body, sort of a disembodied head, uh, but a head that has a body that belongs to him, and he, his head belongs to the body. It speaks of oneness, a unity, a deep, intimate connection that is both spiritual and sexual and biological. So if the husband is the head, it's because his wife is the body, and together they are one flesh. And ultimately, for Paul, Christ's treatment of his body informs the husband's function as the head of the wife. I um, 
I think I'm actually going to stop there and open it up for discussion. I've spoken for uh, a little over an hour, and you all have been attentive and um, respectful as an audience, so thank you for that uh, in your masks. But yeah, I'd like, I'd like to open it up uh, to some questions uh, or some pushback um, or... Maybe a round of applause. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and I'm just... Oh, no, 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 yeah, 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 no. Um, but, uh... It was just my insecure masculinity needing affirmation. <laughs> which is why I should not necessarily, in, in all cases, be an authority over women. But, yeah, yeah. So this is a question. So Paul was, you know, a Pharisee. He had a Jewish education. Did he also have, like, a Greek education? Like, what he... Have read Aristotle in these works? I think I think so. I mean, I think even you, when you see Paul uh, in action in Acts when he's on Mars Hill, he's he's quoting, mm-hmm. and um, yeah. So in, in Tarsus, I think he both had uh, a Greek education as well as a Jewish education. Um, I mean, there's a sense where we just we ultimately kind of I I don't I don't ultimately know. There's a, a New Testament scholar who's written gazillion books uh, named N.T. Wright, and he wrote a biography of Paul that's really well written, it's fun to read, and he um, I mean, he knows historical sources incredibly well, and sort of what the world Paul would have grown up in would have looked like to the best we can. Yeah, and he has Paul very much learning uh, both kind of secular thought uh, and um, uh, and Jewish thought, and um, yeah, so that that's sort of where I'm at with it. I think I think I mean he just shows a lot of signs. This is also like way above my pay grade uh, or my or just like or my education and my uh, like my own comprehension. But there's um, there's a scholar too named Ben Witherington. We have some of his stuff here, and part of what Ben Witherington does uh, is shows things that we don't pick up on and how Paul structures his thought and his arguments that show an awareness of sort of ancient rhetorical practices. And, um, yeah, I mean, but, uh, so, yeah, I think Paul was brilliant, so I could have, yeah, so ultimately I don't know, um, but I, I, I think it's pretty plausible, yeah. Yeah, Marty? Yeah, I think the fact that he was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles and not specifically for the Jews. One of the things that his, his training, maybe in the desert, when yeah. he went off, but um, certainly, certainly was familiar with, with Greek thinking. Yeah. Um, but I would, first of all, thank you so much, Joshua. Yeah. This is actually Dick and I did a lecture years ago on this together on this marriage and mysterious union. Yeah, yeah. A lot of these very same yeah. ideas. Um, but I have a question which I never really had a good answer to, which is... It's probably going to stay that way. No, <laughs> <laughs> well, sorry, but I'm hoping that maybe you can talk about this one, which is when, in the Ephesians 5 passage, yeah. when it describes husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the person in order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word to present the church to himself in splendor without a spot or wrinkle or any other kind. So she may be holy without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives. The 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 sort of it sounds like there's an implication that somehow the husband purifies the wife. 
I mean, Christ purifies the church, but there's sort of there's sort of this idea that the the husband is necessary to somehow make the wife more pure. Yeah. And do you, have you come across anybody really helpful on that? Um, part of that text? Yeah. I mean, what I what I was the, the person who I think just helped me kind of just see it in a different light mm-hmm. was Westfall, who highlighted that. What she, what, what Paul's working with here are, um, uh, are often are are considered like woman's work, like the way he describes oh, right, right, right. the the what a husband's responsibility uh, is through images that are of. I don't want to say he's like spiritualizing women's work, but he's okay. presenting metaphors that would just not necessarily instantly connect. Uh, it would be like, um, yeah, uh, using a lot of, like if I used a lot of cricket illustrations tonight to explain something, yeah. we, you'd just sort of be like, I mean, I don't know, I'm just assuming people in here aren't really cricket fans, and when it, it would just sort of create like, wait, what? What's happening? And I think Paul is using, describing, uh, this is, again, I'm just following Westfall here, but Using images, I mean, they'd be much more familiar than us with cricket, but uh, so maybe that what I just said makes no sense at all, but um, or doesn't work at all. But they would be just sort of, uh, I think, jarring and almost an affront to to sort of Greco-Roman conceptions of what what a man is supposed to to be in the home. And yeah, I've I've heard people talk about some of this being like priestly image, but I don't. I don't think it's uh, because a husband or because a wife needs a husband to do that. I, I think he's trying to work on the imagination of of husbands, sort of calling them away from, you know, Paul. I mean, Paul's thinking on culture is do not be transformed to the patterns of this world, but have your mind renewed. And so, like, I, I do think he's finding ways to sort of. Uh, imaginatively and creatively, like call them out of the norm in, in, into something more. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, one of the things I, I mean, a number of the things I read said, like to hear, um, you know, to hear anything about the wife would have just sort of been no big deal in the ancient world. Um, but the way he addresses men and the sort of would have just been incredibly scandalous and incredibly offensive. Uh, to men. So, I mean, I hear washing of the water with the word, and it sounds very ritualistic. It almost sounds like baptism uh, in some way. So I hear what you're saying, but I I don't I don't have a great answer yet. Ben, do you? Or? Just following up on the same thing, is, West, is Westfall's basic idea, if I'm understanding it correctly, that, the, that those images are less saying that the, the husband is to the wife a savior, sort of as Christ is to the church, but more a servant as Christ is to the church. Yeah. And the, the imagery of washing, yeah. tending to, yeah. I don't know, even some of the, you know, there's even an image of fabric being without blemish or wrinkle. Yeah, doing the laundry, ironing, yeah. Um, as just being a picture of servant's work as, yeah. as opposed to sort of salvific role. Yeah, I mean, and that's what that's what the guy Paget is after in his book, As Christ Submits to the Church. Yeah. Like in the title, it's sort of a provocative title. Actually, don't I don't particularly love the title, but I think his point is like Jesus comes as a servant and submits himself and humiliates himself 
and puts himself sort of under. I mean, just washing his disciples' feet. And, I mean, ultimately, eschatologically, everyone, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess uh, that Jesus is Lord. So that sort of submission one, uh, I think there there is going to be, that is, is perhaps more of an eschatological thing, maybe not for for those who are in Christ in the same way, but like, yeah, Christ models a way of of of, um, uh, of, of a voluntary submission of that of that sort of self emptying. It does humiliating things. So I don't. Yeah, I don't think it's as much that the husband is the savior of the family uh, or anything like that. Um, does that is that making sense? I feel like I just got confused yeah, in my own really, mind. Really helpful. It, but it makes me think of. I think it's in Colossians. Where Paul is speaking to basically to the church again, the way he is here, he's speaking to the whole church, mutual submission, submitting one to another, where he says, um, exhort one another in the Lord. And um, that's talking to husbands and wives exhorting each other. It's not the husband, you know, it's all believers exhorting one another. And rather than the idea that there's, you know, the husbands are in a better position to exhort the wife than the wife to the husband. And I think one of the biggest mistakes of a lot of the sort of complementarian teaching is that, it, is that it ignores the fact that, it seems to ignore the fact that every exhortation to Christians in general applies to husbands and wives. Mm-hmm. And to take this, this text and just exalt wives submit to your husbands out of context which is what you term so beautifully it is out of the context that you feel the spirit and this is what being spilled with spirit is mutual submission etc but um, that every every exhortation to believers in general applies to husbands and wives so there's there's passages like the one in Colossians which I don't remember where it is but you know exhort one another in the Lord correct one another in the Lord so clearly the husband isn't in the position, always in the position to correct the wife. The wife's often in a position to, needs to correct the husband. Yeah. Like Sapphira should have corrected Ananias and mm. maybe both of them wouldn't have died mm. in Acts. Yeah, and it just even thinking of, you know, the, Priscilla and Aquila, who get, yeah. I think, named six times in the New Testament and she's before him right. four of the six times and then in Acts. When they teach, when they show Apollos a better way, right. it's her. Like she's there, you know. Right. And um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I, th- I mean, the fruits of the spirit um, are for 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 men and women. And you know, uh, like you were saying, exhorting uh, is something that's not just a particular role. And I, I didn't say this. And I, yeah, I mean, I just don't know how familiar people are with sort of the discussion, but yeah, there is a lot of discussion on, and you're sort of touching on this, within complementarian camps on roles, that there are roles, particular roles within marriage, and I find it a strange choice of word. I find it a word that to me implies or has the connotations of acting. Like, I, it's, it's a word that its origins are in, in the theater uh, and almost don't feel like... like what makes me a man is is not my uh, is not the role that I play. It's the fact that I I'm a man, like biologically, and um, and it seems like there's a strict delineation of roles of who does what. That not always, and I don't want to just paint 
with the worst 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 light or something like that. But like often feels like it's a second it's that's the primary discussion and things like character uh, are just absent from the discussion. And so you know what your role is, you're told what your roles are, uh, but you haven't like developed in the fruits of the spirit that are for all believers. You haven't grown in in these things. It just anyway, I'm sort of I, I am aware that I'm just rambling at this point, but um, yeah. Anyway, I like what you said. <laughs> yeah. Does anyone else say something? Yeah. Can you tell me your name? I don't know what your name is. I'm like. Maddie. Hi, Maddie. Hi, um, just a question on men being the source or husbands being the source. Yeah. Like that interpretation of headship. I feel like I understand source in the context of like the creation story. Right, 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 right. Like yeah. from Adam, but it yeah. source was being used in like a continuing sense. Like yeah, yeah. continue to be the source yeah. of life. Yeah. Like I wanted to know, like, so you're saying so you replace head with source, then how yeah. does that then inform that yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think it's I think it's a great question. I, I what I was trying to say is I think in both four and in five, like the head uh, body is moving. Like the point of like the metaphor I think is pushing towards an image of unity that there's like a oneness. So I don't I I my point in sort of walking through source was to say it was to show that like you know I hear head now like head of whatever I always think authority. I was trying to just say that, like, in the first century, that wasn't the only or, or, the, or the primary way. Uh, just to sort of question whether or not that's the only way to read it. Um, and I, I agree with you. I see source in the Genesis account, for sure, which I'm not sure when he, when he says the husband is the head of the wife. Or, I mean, as you move further down, uh, you, you find yourself back in, in Genesis 2, uh, uh, when he does that, but I I think his his point is more the head body like he's working towards the connection they both they they're they're one uh, I think that's what the main thing was and I might not have I, I probably didn't make that uh, as clear it's like what he's he's working towards but I mean there are ways I I think especially in the first century where. You know, the average age of in marriage, there was a huge age differential in the average marriage. And there, there are ways that the husband does sort of provide and, and for, for the family and, and be the source of life for the family and protect, especially when, you know, it was not an uncommon or unusual thing for women to get married just right in their early teen years. So, so they're basically children marrying men in their 20s, 30s, um, or older. Um, so I think he's, he's casting it, uh, using the image, casting an image in a way that um, is trying ultimately to work towards the connectedness, that you, you are one together. Like uh, marriage is this crazy fusion of, of, of two becoming one. Um, uh, so I don't, I wouldn't... Am I answering it yet? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. okay, yeah. That's really helpful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That added piece about the context. Yeah. So yeah. Anyway, yeah. So that that's sort of where I'm going because it does. um, Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Want to go back to Margie a little bit over here about the cleansing and so forth. Um, 
the Christ is the head of the church, and the exhortation here to the husband is to be Christ to his wife, basically. Yeah. Um, there is, it seems to me, a sense of something's asked of the husband that's not exactly asked of the wife. I mean, I don't think how we escape that in some way. Yeah, say, yeah, yeah. Well, because we're all one under Christ, which we are, absolutely, yeah. in that level. But then in the marriage arrangement, there seems to be something that, you know, yeah. we married 28 years and um, had to learn that lesson quite a few times, that, you know, th- there is something to that arrangement that's not just like, hey, we're both in that same, I don't know, it's hard to pinpoint exactly, but yeah. I feel sometimes I remind myself, for example, that perhaps when I get the, in front of the judgment seat, I'm going to be asked about my my wife and my family. And I have a feeling that my wife's questions might be slightly different. Mm-hmm. And that's what I get from that. Not that it's yeah, yeah. not that it's not worthy or, or equal or all that. It's just that when you read the passage there, there is something just like Adam, just like Adam being the you know the new Christ being the new Adam. You have this kind of slight differentiation that to me. Um, uh, makes yeah. the beauty of this passage of yeah. mutual submission even yeah. even more important because yeah. maybe perhaps as men, you know, uh, yeah. submitting is definitely not kind of like in the structure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, even yeah. even yeah. in the culture yeah. that you live in, all cultures you look like, right? You look and you used examples earlier. Uh, that's not the arrangement. So yeah. Christ being completely counter culture spiritually, I think we're we're being put in that same calling, uh, if you will. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, when yeah, I read the yeah, passage, yeah. I think it puts a little bit more onus on you, the husband, yeah. in this particular regard. It's just like they're they're because egalitarian is we're all equal, which is great. We're all equal, but it, it really easily becomes we're all the same, uh, and we're we're just not men. Men are men, women are women, husbands are husbands, wives are wives, um, and yeah, I would not. So that's one of the reasons I don't. I feel like maybe 20 years ago it was a great corrective, but I feel like in 2020 we have to. Have, I, I prefer the word mutualist uh, that some people are, are are using to sort of sort of have a different camp. I mean, it's just ridiculous that we always need to make camps and have clubs and <laughs> secret handshakes or whatever. But, um, like, uh, um, yeah, I don't, I think in our age that everyone is always, everyone. the assumption is everyone's equal, uh, which is rarely, I mean, it's just not really true in reality. People don't live on in the exact same way. But it becomes everyone is the same. And I, I don't want to say that uh, there's there's no difference. Um, to me, as long as the difference doesn't imply like like a hierarchically ordered thing, I, I I'm I'm I think it's hard to get away from what you said. And there is a call uh, for involvement in the home spiritually. Uh, it's men here, and um, I I don't think Paul wouldn't want women to be involved. I mean, I even think about how Paul talks about Timothy. Uh, and who, who are the people that prayed over Timothy and, and shaped Timothy, this son, uh, this spiritual son of Paul? It was his, his mother and grandmother. 
Um, so I think Paul, and I just see, I also see the pattern of ministry in Paul's letters is that, that women are, are involved in the church in all sorts of ways. Uh, as, as deacons, Junia is called an apostle. There's churches that meet in, in the homes of, of wealthy women. I mentioned Priscilla, like, um, there's Phoebe, who's like my hero in Romans 16. And, um, so I don't, I don't think it's, uh, I, I want to, I just want to want to say like, it's, I do think men and women are different. And I think my role as a father is different than Sarah's role, uh, as a mother. And, uh, the way I interact in my home, uh, I think is important for, for the flourishing of our home. But I think Sarah's is also as well. I don't think you're, I'm not disagreeing with you. I, I actually, I appreciate, uh, I appreciate what you, what you said, um, uh, quite a bit. But it, cause it is, it's almost like Paul knows, uh, actually, I don't know if I should say that. I was gonna say, it's like Paul knows sometimes husbands and men need, 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 a, need a call to be involved. I, I, I just, this is anecdotal. <laughs> so, I just know a lot of spiritually absentee dads. Uh, and then also, uh, I mean, just in every sense, absentee dads, which I don't, um, I, I also know spiritually absentee or spiritually abusive moms. I don't think it just cuts one way, uh, all the time. Um, yeah, were you gonna say something, Marty? Or? Yeah, I think, um, 1 Peter 3 is really interesting in this context. And you, you pointed out really nicely 1 Corinthians 7, which is this passage that's completely egalitarian. Everything that's said of wives is said to husbands, and there's this little phrase, in exactly the same way. Um, husbands are to are to love their wives, give themselves to the wife. The sexual relationship, totally mutual. Um, and you pointed that out really well. But, but um, 1 Peter 3 the passage that describes wives as the more vulnerable partner. And, you know, a lot of translations say the weaker vessel, which I kind of revolt against. But I think, I'm mean, Francis Schaeffer used to say, the more vulnerable. And and I think there's something that's actually true in that, true in women's greater vulnerability, both by creation and by fall. By creation, that women bear babies, and in this cult, that the culture you're talking about, they often started bearing babies at age 14, 15, 16. That is a, a very real biological vulnerability that women have that men do not have. Um, and then by the fall, women are more vulnerable than men. But because, because ever since Genesis 3.16, we've been living in a culture which is, which where sexism and patriarchy <laughs> have been the norm, um, because of the fall. And in that context, Peter tells husbands to treat their wives as the more vulnerable partner, as as equal heirs of the gracious gift of life. So he's saying, your wives are more vulnerable. Your job as the husband with greater power, and in fact, it has implications for every relationship of inequality of power. The Bible is just from start to finish. So those who have more power have the responsibility to empower the weaker and to encourage them and to and not and never to abuse their power over them. Um, so in that in that passage it says husbands are to treat their wives as 
equal heirs of the gracious gift of life. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he even warns them if they don't, God won't hear their prayers. Mm-hmm. But the, the greater vulnerability of women, I think, does has something to do with the with the asymmetry of that metaphor of head. That there's you know there is an asymmetry. There's a total mutuality, but. Whereas, in, whereas yeah. in 1 Corinthians 7, you can reverse everything that's said to husbands and wives. You can't reverse head and body. Mm-hmm. So you can't say the, the wife is the head of it. And so I think that's getting at something of what you're saying, is that there is a way in which, perhaps because of women's greater vulnerability, a husband has a kind of protective responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember sitting in a class at Wellesley College on history of gender in America and pointing out the fact that why working class women would not support the Equal Rights Amendment um, in the 1970s, where, where very middle class and upper class feminists were fighting for this Equal Rights Amendment, because they said, we'll lose all our protective legislation that earlier feminists fought hard mm. for, so that, so that pregnant women would not have to work overtime, would not have to carry the same lift the same weights mm-hmm. as men. And so they were fighting for some recognition of the greater vulnerability of women, the biological reality, you know, of being pregnant, giving, making you not exactly the same as men. And so, you know, I, I got a lot of slack from Professor by just mentioning that and saying, you know, maybe there was some reason why working class women wouldn't support
Mellenberg of the culture and the source thing. Um, you know, cultures are different everywhere. I'm from France, and, and it's not like here. Sorry to say, we're a little bit number one. Oh no, sorry. Uh, no, but the thing is, there's different arrangements, and you know, yeah. Christianity looks a little different there. And then you go to Africa, and it looks quite differently there too. So you have to. Yeah. Anyways, that's your question. Yeah. No, no, no. I. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, that's where, like, I, um, tr- I tried, I tried to frame it. Like, I, I'm not, like, exegetically or theologically, like, uh, a, a complementarian. But like, um, <laughs> I don't know. Part of me feels like a lot of egalitarian writers or thinkers are spending all their time like blasting complementarians and complementarians are spending all this time blasting egalitarians, at least online. And it's it's like vicious. And I'm just like, the world over, there are yeah. we all can agree that like women should not be abused, children should not uh, like we can work together on because exactly. if we agree on that, that that men and women are both are both equal before God like uh, in, in, in status like like let, let's get behind like women driving in Saudi Arabia. That Absolutely. could be like a great, or you know maybe not having the World Cup in Qatar where there's tremendous human rights uh, violations. You know like we can agree on some of uh, of some of those things. Like we can agree that like the abuse that's happened in like the Southern Baptist Church and the Catholic Church. These are things we 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 mourn and work against. And you know. Um, so, yeah, and anyway, it's just like, yeah, to hear, like, if you, you know, if you act like, you know, if you act like Christ, uh, like, don't worry about, you know, the submission thing. Like, yeah, because, like, I think that's what the guy's after in his book, like, is Christ submits to the church. Like, Christ emptied himself and took on the role of a servant uh, and, and it's, in a sense, submitted himself and, and honored and cared for and... Um, and I, I just think at least sometimes in, uh, some of this is anecdotal, some of this is like reading certain people, just there's so much emphasis on, uh, or it feels like the, the emphasis falls on your authority, like you're the authority, you're the authority, you need to man up, and, and it's like, well, like... You, yeah, like call to love is very clear. Like what what this woman said, you know, to the to the man there, and or that you were counseling, and yeah. So anyway, yeah. Um, I'm hesitant to uh, talk about this, but I'm a single guy, so I haven't really thought about this topic a lot. <laughs> but um, it came to my attention through the rise and fall of Mars Hill as a podcast. It talks about the, the rise and fall of Mars Hill Church in the past few months or so. They were just staunch in the complementarian view. And I'm listening to this podcast and I'm hearing stories of women and I'm just thinking, like, I'm listening to this podcast and just some of these women experience with the church has not been that great. But then by the time I got the end of the podcast, like, some of the men were just completely destroyed by, like, the legalism and, and, you know, the thoughts of this, this view. So I, I just wanted to put that out there. Um, yeah. To the point where, like, women of church leaders were, like, forbidden 
from working. And, like, it was just very, like, there was, there was, like, a lot of, like, legalism to that. Yeah, it was very structured and very, like, yeah, 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 yeah. But then yeah. I was thinking back to your lecture about how you, you were reading, like, the footnotes of books on complementary, and it, it seems like it's heavy on the Asian verse. And so it just seems like there's there's a level of kind of, like, legalism to it. Yeah. yeah. And I, I do think Mark Driscoll is, like, an exceptionally bad example of... Uh, of many things, but of like, like he's an exaggerated version of the, he like is the worst or one, or actually he's probably not, but I think he was one of the the, the worst and of sort of the complementarian camp. Like I, I think there's a lot of fellow complementarians who were just, I mean, there were actually quite a few that were disgusted with him. Uh, he wrote a book on, uh, um, they talk about it in the podcast, like real marriage or something. And it's like, it's endorsed by some complementarians, but like the complementarian journal slammed it and said it's, it's terror. Like, uh, the biblical manhood and womanhood journal, I forget what I think that's who they said did, wrote like a, a pretty extensive critique of it. So even like within, I do think, <laughs> yeah, he, he was just not, uh, I mean, he was buddies with all of those people, at least initially. Like, he was sharing the stage with a lot of them, but I do think he's a pretty exaggerated... Um, he's Yeah, he's almost uh, sometimes too easy to sort of... Uh, um, he's the easy target. He's like the low-hanging fruit. And, and not not against the podcast. I think the podcast was, was well done in a lot of ways. Um but uh, at least within that world, I'm just I'm trying to speak as highly of of that world. I do think he was um, just I think very insecure and very unhealthy. And I think that's one of my fears, both my experience like within my family uh, and within friends' families and so many others that there is such a rigid understand like a rigid scripted view of what being a husband is and I think it drives especially insecure men or men who have for various reasons like don't have an, a high emotional intelligence uh, and don't know how like they, they hear the like head leadership stuff you're in charge you need to do this you, and like yeah it just I think insecure insecure men, which a lot of men are in, a lot of us are insecure, um, uh, that sort of constant voice, uh, uh, I think, is sort of like a little devil on your shoulder, uh, and doesn't, doesn't lead to, to freedom, you know, and Paul, and Paul's, um, that Galatians, you know, to become servants of one another, you know, um, you know, the beginning of Galatians five for freedom, Christ has set us free, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit to another yoke of slavery. I think sometimes those visions of what a Christian household must look like, um, yeah, really do become, uh, become enslaving. And, um, yeah, as I said earlier on, I don't want to make it sound like complementarians are the only people with problems. I think, there's a, a pretty like 
natural, nat- seeming naturally happening drift uh, in egalitarians as well. Like, there's two ways to fall off a roof, you know? Um, and uh, maybe there's three or four. I, but, um, yeah, if it's a pyramid, yeah, if it's a pyramid, there's at least four. Um, but, yeah, that, I mean, I think, yeah, I do think, yeah, hearing hearing some of those stories from Mars Hill were really tragic because I, I think what's hard too is sometimes or difficult too is with Mark Driscoll with a huge platform. This was right in the center of what you had to believe, and if the, it sort of like felt like if there was a crack in this, it just went like all the way to the core, like almost to the resurrection, and people just are like, I can't do this biblical womanhood thing. I'm out. Forget the whole thing. I don't want to. And you're just like, you're like, ah, oh, like. There's reasons to leave, for people to leave Christianity or the church, but like, let's hope there are at least decent reasons, not like like reasons that are so avoidable, and um, like the way that I'm not saying I think people should. I'm just trying to say like some people have legitimate stories and real. Anyway, I'm just sort of stepping all over myself here. I feel like, but yeah, it just felt like it was put like right there. It's like Nicene Creed. And then, you know, the Danvers statement on biblical masculinity and femininity, just sort of right there. And um, sometimes, yeah, it's quite, it was, it, I think for a lot, it's a, it's a heavy, heavy yoke and a heavy burden. But I, um, I also, you know, I have dear friends that are complementarians who I respect, who I think have beautiful marriages. Um, and like I said, I, well, anyway. Someone else, yeah. I'm talking too much. I'll just just one anecdote and then another question. Um, I just think so much of what makes a good marriage happens on the ground, figure things out as you go, without imposing some arbitrary <laughs> sense of I have to do this because I'm a man. Okay, you know, one yeah. like, may be completely like. Um, so I mean, I think like you just said, people who hold hold more complementarian view. Oftentimes, their marriages function very well. You wouldn't necessarily know they're complementary by yeah, actually yeah, yeah, yeah. live day in day out. Yeah, <laughs> it's because marriages are so incredibly uh, practical. And uh, anyway, that's just. But, it, but um, one question I had was: maybe I, I just wanted you to. Um, I have a vague memory of talking to you about this subject about a year ago, and you mentioned that. Um, Within complementarian circles, oftentimes um, express their views as being uh, in continuity with the sort of early church fathers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and yet, actually, it's not at all because the early church fathers believed that there was a hierarchy because men and women were not equal. <laughs> and the idea of the hierarchy was based on the intrinsic inferiority of women. Yeah. And yet the complementarian, at least some people within this group, um, claim continuity with the religious fathers, but they're saying men and women are, are equal, but there's a hierarchy. So actually there's quite a break mm-hmm. between sort of like early church thinking, which was, which yeah, was yeah. completely based on the inferiority of women intrinsically. Yeah. Uh, is, that, is that, who, who is it that? Both, both this, uh, both this guy, up here, Paget. 
he talks about this, but uh, in a more kind of like uh, detailed way, this guy, William Witt in Icons of Christ, which is an expensive book, but you can always borrow it. Um, but uh, yeah, he says that, and so like Wayne Grudem, who is part of the uh, Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, who's a defender of sort of a strict hierarchy within marriage and women's submission, and that men, male headship means authority. He has an essay that begins with a line like, he quotes, wives submit to your husband and says something to the effect of, basically for 1900 years there was no question on what this, there's no question on the interpretation of this. Uh, everyone interpreted it the exact same way. And then he's, he calls uh, egalitarians or mutualists in a derisive way, he calls them evangelical feminists, um, which is his like in your face kind of, kind of thing. And, yeah, it's just also, like, and then he, again, he, he says, uh, submission is one way in marriage, wives submit to husbands, but men and women are equal. Um, but if you look at, um, and it's the same, he'll do men and women are equal, but men are to lead in the church and women are not to lead in the church. Um, and he has actually an 82 point list on what's acceptable for a woman to do and what's not acceptable for a woman to do. Sort of feels like a little pharisaical. Um, uh, but yeah, one of the things Witt says is like, it's just actually not true. If you look at the, even if the position is the same, even if throughout church history, uh, there was a lot of emphasis on women's subordination to men, the rationale was different. There was not like, so, uh, that, yeah, that women were like very much like Aristotle, like, um, Josephus that I, I quoted that women are inferior to men there's few moments where it's sort of people are somewhat ambiguous about it or say one thing and then say another like like you can more or less have Augustine say anything you want because he just said so much um, and same with I mean Luther too I think but um, but mo- most often the rationale was not men and women are equal but there's different roles the rationale was women are inferior to men. That's why men lead in the home and in the church. So, like the the claim that the uh, complementarian movement is the traditional position is, um, I think, at best dubious and uh, more often than not misleading and unfair. The position or the practice might be the same, but the rationale behind it. Uh, is quite different, and especially the language of roles is is very new. Um, I think it's, I don't think it's. Help. There's also other complementarians who don't like the language of roles and are are more thoughtful. But um, yeah, so yeah, Wit, Wit says that. Um, but. Yeah. I was hoping that someone said it wasn't such an expensive book. But, uh, yeah, you can always borrow it. You know where I'm You know where I'm Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and I mean, it's just worth saying, too, just because, like, complementarians have had a lot of bad press because there's a big scandal in the Sydney Anglican Church where there was, you know, polls taken, a lot of abuse in the church that had not gone reported. Same thing recently happened in Southern Baptist Church, but I, I I think yeah there's a there is an appropriate reckoning that needs to happen, but I don't think like 
sexual abuse and um, abuse within homes or an abuse because of a teaching of headship or male leadership. I, I don't think it's only uh, characteristic of uh, Eric can like only happen in complementarian churches. I think it definitely happens in <laughs> egalitarian churches too, or they just have other other sort of uh, other very pervasive <laughs> sins. Uh, so I don't know. I just don't. Just because Rise of Mars Hill and all this stuff, you're like, our fault, Mars Hill. There's just been a lot of bad press for complementarians. But. And the, yeah, anyway, I don't need to talk. I'll just talk about that for a long time. Anyone else have another question or comment or anything? Or, yeah. Uh, I, I, I have so many thoughts on this, but uh, the, uh, I think it's worth mentioning that the, the idea of Oikos, and you probably know this, but we didn't mention it, it's also the root of our word. Economy, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and how that idea of economy, I think, factors into this. Uh, the, the other thing uh, is the, uh, the idea of the uh, that you also mentioned uh, at the beginning, sort of the ultimate authority of the father within the household. Uh, fortunately, seems to have rarely if ever been sort of an issue. Uh, and maybe that's because it was just so deeply ingrained. It was not a drum that had to be beaten to uh, to, uh, to, to to get things done. Uh, it was just sort of like uh, uh, almost uh, ambient light. It was there, but was not having to be uh, stressed in, in order for things to, be under, uh, to function. And I think hand in hand, in hand with that, uh, from what I understand, uh, within the economy of the household, uh, the paterfamilias was there, but very often the running of the household was the woman. Mm. She was the master who sort of ordered things and uh, ensured that the economy was functioning as it should be. You know, the, the father was there, but it was the mother who sort of, on a day-to-day basis, uh, ensured that things were happening as they should be. And, and somehow, I think that factors... Yeah, there's, there's this... So, like, the paterfamilia that's is invested with a legal right. It's a legal fiction yeah. in some ways of patria protesta, I think is how you say right, it. Right. And um, it's very, like there's records we know, like, and it, it, it should go to the firstborn son uh, upon him coming of age. But there are, there's legal, uh, like, options if, like, the paterfamilias dies and there's no one to take his place for a few years, those legal rights are actually, can be transferred to the wife as she runs the house or takes care of things until the child comes of age. So even there, it's like there's some uh, like util like utility or, or like um, it's, it's sort of it's practical in a sense too. But yeah, it's I mean it's interesting because I do like reading about Paul and slavery and just being like ah oh, like why didn't why didn't Paul just say this is terrible? Let's get rid of like let's. Let's burn the whole thing down. Like, let's, uh, 
And it's just interesting to hear that like there was no one actually who said that for 400 years. It wasn't until Gregory of Nyssa that anybody said we should get rid of slavery. It just like wasn't. I'm sure there were lots of slaves who thought this would be awesome if I if I if we could end this. But it was just like the way uh, it was the the pattern of the world. Yeah, it was just the pattern of the world. So and yeah, I think stepping into sort of like the translation that needs to happen between today and and the world that scripture emerged from sometimes isn't isn't so big but sometimes it's it is it it is quite a bit bigger and i was gonna say cindy westfall also in this book paul and gender when she talks about households talks about a similar thing that you were you were talking about that sometimes on the ground there were uh women who would be in charge of slaves and so there were women then who would have some sense of authority over a man um and so yeah it's just much more complicated more rich than sort of i i think because we've tended to translate ephesians 5 to um modern nuclear family uh well and not ephesians 6 once they talk about slaves it's like oh that's that's about work like talk it's about your boss or something but um yeah, were you going to say something? Well, this is, I think this is totally relevant to um, the kind of role conversations you often hear people claiming that the biblical model is man is the breadwinner and woman is the homemaker. And and often pointing back to passages in 1 Timothy and Titus. Woman is the keeper of the home. With absolutely no historical context that the home was the basis of the economy. That the home was not that, that when when the writer of um, Timothy told women to be keepers of the home, he was not telling career women to quit their jobs and come home. He was telling them it, it, it was a ba- it was the basis of the economy. It work work and home were one until the industrial revolution wrenched work out of the home, and then now we have this crisis. It's really since the 1950s that you had this. Or starting in the 19th century, when they, when work, economic work, left the home um, because of the Industrial Revolution, that was when this crisis of home and work, and who's going to do the work in the home, and who's going to work out there? Oh, okay, women's places in the home. But that's where it originated, not in the, not in biblical times. And so when you have Christians arguing that the biblical model is women are at home, men are um, the breadwinners. That doesn't make any sense at all, actually, biblically or historically. Because men and women, for centuries, have raised bread and children together from home with a huge variety of divisions of labor given the difference in the culture, pre-industrial, post-industrial, agricultural, etc., etc. And, and so it's, it's totally relevant to, to the kind of role talk. And in fact, you know, you really need to distinguish between the biblical absolutes and and the silences of the Bible about how those are worked out. You know, parents are meant to raise their children. So it doesn't say mothers are the primary parent. Nowhere does it say that in the Bible, Old Testament or New Testament. It's fathers and mothers, raise your children, nurture your children in the fear of the Lord. And and everyone's meant to work in the broadest sense of that of that word. And it's not it, the value of the work isn't described in terms of how much money you make. It's, or whether you're paid at all. But it's, that's a really good point. It's totally economy, household. They're the same same word in the root. 
because it was, the household was the center of the economy until really the 19th century. Still is in many parts of the world. Yeah. So how, in many of these writings, they talk about um, uh, Paul's thinking being informed by like, the ideal life in Proverbs 31. No, uh, not that no, not that I've read, but um, yeah, I, I haven't I haven't come across that. But yeah, well, were you yeah. thinking any or or, or just just like thinking about a connection in scripture? Or, yeah, I mean, it, yeah, that's like kind of called out as like the ideal life. Right yeah, there, and then and she's good at business. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. She's yeah. moving real estate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Described as the as the ideal wife for the for the king, actually. I mean, it's, it's the advice of the king's mother to his son, to the king, to what kind of wife he should look for. And, and historically, it was seen as Bathsheba's advice to Solomon that would that he had taken her advice. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Taking all these foreign wives. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right, well, uh, if no one else has anything... I think we're good. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah.